You know we are far from all the same. When white folks in around, you see all the light-skinned girls gather in one corner of the room, while the dark-skinned girls gather in the other. And you know, coming up, light-skinned cats get it harder from other black people sometimes than they do from white people. What's your point, Jim? My point is that sometimes I wonder if all the pushing and all the hardline this and hardline that is about trying to prove something to white people. Or is it about trying to prove something to black people? Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast, a safe place for folks who like the book better than the movie. We are recording this on, it was on Monday, March 8th, 2021. I haven't updated our Google Doc here, but it's actually Friday, March 12th, That's correct. 2021, because we had a little snafu with the audio. So this is take two, folks. Um, but today we are discussing the film and book and play, excuse me, One Night in Miami, streaming currently on Amazon Prime. With me to talk about the adaptation is the good-looking Bob Dylan singing and a Nation of Islam ca- Islam cardholder, Brother Eric. Say hello to the people, Lee. Hello, people. Am I better looking or worse looking than the last time when we recorded this? That's a good question. And this is definitely better because you're wearing a blue shirt and that like goes well with everything above you. Wow, Above you. your, your neck. Thank you, know you so much. <laughs> That's very kind. I wouldn't say you're as gorgeous as Cassius Clay or Eli Gurie for that matter but no definitely not who is really not it's me high, it's high standards yeah I'm like a I'm like a, a hard five in the, in the you can give yourself a little credit more credit than that. <laughs> to to his credit Eric did run a sub six mile time oh you still last remember weekend. that I'm glad we're still talking about this how could I forget um we'll put it on the Instagram but yeah. I you know 527 it's nothing to laugh at did Orange Theory tweet you out or they did. Oh, did yeah. they really? I should show it to you. You should. Two people in um, our Orange Theory studio ran five minute miles. Oh my! So God. I was third place in the studio that day at a with a five twenty seven. But yeah, two people ran five flat. What the fuck's wrong with those people? I don't know. I, I don't know. Are you gonna fight them or race them? Or? Well, I think if I fought them, I'd probably win. Because they're probably lighter and yeah, right. Yeah. But I like to think that I I run a five thirty, but I could also probably win or place. You know, I place on the rower and i probably place on the floor you for know? sure i'm well-rounded in that way these yeah. people if you're running a five minute mile you're probably very mile focused you're a well-rounded athlete yes yeah. i yeah i mean you were first team all state in high school that's right is so. it that, that might be the first time we said that on this podcast which is too late honestly yeah. <laughs> but um as far as athletes go i pale in comparison to some of the players in this book that's fair enough um so give you guys some fast facts the play, uh, also named One Night in Miami, was written by Kemp Powers, um, who wrote and directed Soul, I believe. Uh, co-writer of Soul, not co-writer. Director. Okay, co-writer Pete, of Soul. Pete Doctor wrote or directed Soul. Oh, okay, and uh, it was first performed in June 2013 at the Rogue Machine Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, Goodreads rating of 4.19 with only 37 ratings, so it's not a very popular play. Uh, read at least read and reviewed on Goodreads. Uh, but the movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival and TIFF in September 2020. Uh, it was a runner-up for the People's Choice Award at TIFF, uh, and it lost to Nomadland, which we recorded a couple weeks ago in our most recent episode. Uh, it was a limited re- release by Amazon Studios on Christmas 2020 uh, before being released digitally on Prime Video on January 15th, 2021. Also, Regina King's birthday, so happy birthday to her. Belated. Uh, directed by Regina King. Uh, this is her debut directorial debut feature feature directorial debut thank you i think I, I think i was listening to her talk and she's directed a couple episodes of that's true like random tv shows that is true not even not only ones that she starred in but like ones that i didn't know that she would have directed Yeah, probably some shorts in there also yeah yeah 
Um, and then the screenplay was by Ken Powers, who also wrote the, the play. Uh, big year for Ken Powers. Uh, and starring Kingsley Benadir as Malcolm X, Eli Gurry as Cassius Clay, Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown, and Leslie Odom Jr. of um, what's Hamilton. Hamilton fame. Aaron Burr, sir. Yes, sir. And he played uh, Sam Cooke. Yep. So Rotten Tomatoes scored 98%, Metacritic 83, received three Golden Globe nominations for Best Director, Regina King, Best Supporting Actor for Leslie Odom Jr., and Best Original Song for Speak Now. Eric, please give us the recap. While you're out of breath, well, One Night in Miami tells the fictionalized story of a meeting between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, then known as Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke in February 1964, celebrating Clay beating Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world he did it um i think the age age ranges are pretty wide i think malcolm x is maybe the oldest he's 39 or mm-hmm. almost almost 40 mm-hmm. and um clay is 22 22 yeah. so the the players range within those two age brackets yeah um so if you're ready we're gonna play a little game called two truths and one lie i'm ready please read me three statements two of them being true and one of them being a lie. I'm glad that we've come to the point where you're just going to read me how it's done. Yes. You're welcome. Maybe one day I'll read these to you. No. Okay. Never. Um, number one, Leslie Odom Jr. is married to his on-screen wife, Nicolette Robinson, in real life. Uh, Regina King is the first female African-American director to have her film selected for the Venice Film Festival. And Leslie Odom Jr. is the brother of former Los Angeles Lakers basketball player, Lamar Odom. Eric. What do you think? So I feel like if Leslie Odom was part of America's royal family, we would have known that. Lamar Odom being the ex of Chloe uh, Kardashian. Controversial believe, ex, right? I believe I've used all those names correctly. Um, yeah, I think he had some personal problems, but that's okay. That's right. No, of course. Um, I think he's happy and healthy now. Is anyway, it good? I don't think Leslie Odom and, and Lamar Odom are brothers. Uh, there obviously is a, a very large height well, differential and i'm not getting into the other part which <laughs> the last time we recorded i had a whole soliloquy on why i what i associate lamar odom with mm-hmm. and that's probably not healthy to get into <laughs> it's um not. it's, it's he, a entourage if anybody was yeah it was it's actually very benign but uh still not good that that's where my mind goes fair enough anyway uh even when we did this last time i knew that was the lie as i'm banging into my mic <laughs> Um, because but they, how they many, don't look alike and they are very far from how many people with the last name Odom do you know or have you ever heard of and if it's more than two I will say that you're lying I think it is two yeah so I mean they both live in LA or you know well now you're explaining were. why you wrote these <laughs> why you wrote this out you don't know where I'm Leslie Odom saying. lives Leslie Odom was probably a New Yorker he, might, he was probably in New York for a while but he's you know maybe he's in LA now well, he's a film guy, so where's what's where the name the of the um, the the Black Beverly Hills? Oh, where they stayed in the movie? Yeah. Um, God, uh, I can't remember. It's yeah, it's Maybe another kind of hills. At. Yeah, yeah. They have a better view though, apparently. Yeah. So it's, it sounds cool. Though. Yeah, I'll probably check it out at yeah. some point. Um, <laughs> yes, that's that's the lie. I, I'm interested though that Regina King is the first female uh, black director to be nominated for the Venice yeah film festival so to yeah so just to say for the record you are correct oh so i know you're a sweating yeah but, but yeah so that was a that one stuck out to me because i mean certainly there have been plenty of other uh african-american female african-american directors in the past and ava duvernay stands out because she's most recent and she's made at least a few films that have been very noteworthy and have been at least uh noted or noticed by the golden globes or the academy awards so that was kind of 
I guess, surprising. Miss the Italians. Yeah, maybe there. Uh, but I think, the, I, yeah, you you mentioned Ava DuVernay. Mm-hmm. Um, was that who you said? Uh, I think that's right. Okay. Um, I think maybe the point is just like there actually haven't really been a whole lot of like female black directors. Yeah. And so it's a question of um, access, right? Yeah. If, mm-hmm. if you're, if there's a smaller like pool of these people that are allowed to make movies that could be in the Venice Film Festival, then yeah. there's going to be fewer. We those. don't want to make excuses for the people in Italy, though. They should, you know. That's true. They should up their game a little bit. That's why Venice is sinking. So. Like they should, they should be proactive, like the Golden Globes, and just come out and say, "We don't have any uh, yeah. African American journalists, but we're we're working on it." They're not working. How funny that. was? I mean, how ridiculous was that? Well, you know that there was there's like a, there was a whole drama with the Golden Globes this year. There was a big L.A. Times article like a week before. Oh, was that oh, where okay. they like talked about the culture of the Hollywood Foreign Press, where they have no black members and they routinely and they were sort of like a wink wink. Everyone knew this, but they the reason like Emily in Paris was nominated was because some of the people in that uh body got to go to paris to watch them film that's ridiculous so they're like hey come watch our production and like let's get an <laughs> we'll get a nom later right that's ridiculous um so wow they're um journalists with like an italic and like italicized journalist or like qu- quotation marks they're not like around real journalists journalists yeah okay so it's good because i was thinking the the i think his name is wesley morris the guy for the ringer yeah he's you, pretty famous he like. works for the new york times now Oh, okay. But it's like, how is that guy not? I assume the Hollywood foreign, foreign press. He's from, I guess, the United yeah. States. Is that why? Well, yeah. Fuck. I think. Well, I think critics aren't in. They're like he wouldn't vote for the Oscars. The Oscars are a body made up of like filmmakers, creatives, right? Yeah. yeah. So he probably votes for like the New York's critics mm. circle awards, whatever they're called. But I, I think the like the Golden Globes are specifically for foreign. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association. It would make sense, yeah. I yeah. guess I just never put the those words together. Yeah. Sounded them out. I have to sound them out. Yeah. And then think about the them. H- it's very difficult. HF. Foreign. PA. Anyways. Yeah. So The Oscars are, are a month away, a month and a half away. So I can't wait for that. Yeah. Get some real awards in here. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get some life advice from Eric. One of my favorite quarantine activities is laundry. Is that right? Yeah, you know. Um washing drying folding well you don't take part in the washing and the drying you just put them in but spiritually i am taking part in it i'm rooting for it to to get washed and then subsequently dry are you one of those people who waits intently for it to finish or are you one of those people who puts it in the laundry or the dryer and then forgets about it and then folds it like eight hours later usually i don't forget but i have there have been times that i've forgotten absolutely what happened the last time i forgot there's only two loads too. so you're a forget person not not usually it's i think it's based on where my like high priority items are are they in load one or load two if they're mm-hmm. in load one you get them out and you get them hung or folded or whatever mm-hmm. then your mind's gone you're like oh i got my shirt out you know i folded it mm-hmm. we're good but if that's in load two then you won't forget about load two that's true so it's about reprioritizing your priority items and we're back thank you from that great life advice from eric thank you you're welcome appreciate that don't spend it all in one place i won't don't worry (laughs) um so eric did you like reading the play one night in miami i liked it just fine 
Um, I think as as fantasies go, this was interesting. I certainly think like bringing all these four titans of the civil rights movement together is a is a cool conceit for for story. And certainly, there's a ton of big ideas, big topics, important topics that are are discussed. I just, for whatever reason, it just didn't fully connect with me. Mm-hmm. Like I thought. I keep talking about Jim Brown. Like I, I really wish this was more of a, a forehander rather than a Malcolm X is your lead. Sam cook is your sort of supporting mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali is the character that they're sort of vying over. Yep. And Jim Brown is just there. Yeah. I, I sort of wish he could have elevated those characters to bring them more on equal footing and ratchet up the tension that way. Right mm-hmm. now it just sort of seems like Jim Brown is there and yeah. Muhammad Ali is being vied for. And I don't know. I, it's it's not as complicated as I wanted it to be. I wonder what his like reasoning for bringing Jim Brown into this play was. I mean, maybe you just couldn't have told the story without Jim Brown. Maybe. But in the telling of it, he left him on the sidelines a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know if Jim Brown was a big advocate for the civil rights movement. Um, you wouldn't know reading this play. You wouldn't know reading the play. Other right? than that he's in the room. He's more of like the reasonable friend of everybody who speaks truths and speaks true truths and, and reason for people. You know what I mean? He's he's sort of like the friend that you lean on when you're having a hard time who's, who you're willing to talk to. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He, it's interesting because he is he is at once like Muhammad Ali, like he's in the sports world. Yep. He wants to go into the acting world and wants mm-hmm. to be more of a like Hollywood entertainer and not a like gladiator entertainer. Yeah. Like Stan Cook is he doesn't have a lot of his like own thing. Yeah. They were talking about like, Oh, he's the strongest man in the world, but like he's with Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, like real question. Who do you think would win in a fight between Muhammad Ali oh. in his prime and Jim Brown? Well, that's a different question than having to fight or strongest man. I mean, they have a stronger world strongest man competition. They lift weights. They don't fight Eric. I suppose so. So, but Jim Brown is not the world's strongest. Like, I don't think Jim Brown would have won that competition. Probably not, but and I don't know. Boxing is different than, being a football player. Yeah. Certainly boxing is certainly easier on your knees, but not on your mind. So who do you, if, if they were to scrap just like not about like no, like Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather, where Floyd has a big advantage because they're boxing. Mm-hmm. If they were just to actually fight, who do you like Jim Brown or Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali. I mean, what, All right. what are we talking about? That's, my, that's sort of my point is just like Jim Brown is just a, is just a, like a B version of, the stuff Muhammad Ali brings and the stuff Sam Cooke brings. Yeah. And I'm talking like plot mechanics wise, right? For sure. Yeah. Um, that's fair. So it's just, I don't know. He's an interesting person to throw in there and then give like really nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Plus he's, plus he's quiet and that's maybe more, maybe it's realistic to Jim Brown as a person. Yeah. But I think maybe you have that character because the, all the other characters are so vocal and so big, I guess. Like maybe you need kind of a base, you know, like a, he slows the action down. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't written a play before, so I'm not sure. Well. Have you? No, I have not. Okay. It's too much dialogue. I'm more of a uh, descriptor kind of guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm more of like a spend four pages just with like the, the tree's roots, you know, watching them ripple and grow. Yeah. You write that for me. I'll read it for you. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and then uh, what parts of the play were you excited to see adapted? I mean, since I didn't love this play, I this is a harder one for me to answer. Mm-hmm. I think 
just bringing these four characters together was interesting to me even yeah. if i knew that they weren't going to be all on the poster like on the same level <laughs> you know what i mean uh what about you uh for me i was excited to see the tension and animosity and just the overall general interaction between sam cook and uh malcolm x because um that was one of my favorite parts of the play just their banter and their bickering towards each other and their you know just their verbal fight fights essentially um that was really interesting so i was excited to see that for the film uh and then why do we think this was adapted i think it's the names right like it's you know you're you're able to put malcolm x and muhammad ali on a poster yeah and then maybe like sam cook and jim brown are probably less known than than those two headliners Mm but um that and regina king i think is probably a name now she's well she yeah i mean she is now but i kind of think like i guess that's not related to why you would have to play yeah i mean i don't know when they made this i'm not sure if she had maybe won her oscar before or after like they agreed to all this but she certainly you know she wasn't super popular before she won her oscar and then um if beale street could talk came out and she certainly and then when she won the she oscar, might have been less mainstream yeah now, then she sort of like became mainstream and she was in watchmen on hbo yeah now she's sort of more of a household name but i think before all that happened i'm not sure when they agreed to it but i think this is kind of a film that's like you know if you're an investor or you're a film person you're like yeah she's you know she's been in the film industry for years like let's give her like give her a shot kind of thing yeah and i i've said this before but i just don't know why like this play versus all the other plays in the universe like i i don't know it didn't i didn't read it and think like oh my god like i need this on amazon prime right if my jeff bezos is like oh my god how am i gonna charge people 99 dollars a year if we don't have one night in miami Uh, how am i gonna do it i don't know I, that didn't it didn't like scream that to me fair enough you know what I, mean, I mean of all the atrocity that's made nowadays this is certainly like not some of the worst yeah and i know it's not apples to apples it's not like you get this and you don't get something else mm-hmm. like we can get everything yeah it's, it's just like good. why did this have to be why was this like in the front of the queue to be yeah. made and other plays like maybe aren't i don't yeah. know fair enough i mean fair criticism um i don't know i, I think it's a, a cool myth piece of mythology mm-hmm. that as a play i thought probably could have been a little bit better fair enough i i personally think it the reason you make this movie is for the four characters but you like so you like this play i should say right i did i did enjoy the play a lot yeah. um yeah i just thought it was really interesting i mean it was super easy to read it was super short which is like perfect for me um, with my attention span so and your reason for liking it is that it was so short yeah if it was so you just shorter wanted, you just wanted it, it to be over you just yeah. wanted it to be over <laughs> but no but it, i mean i also really i i think i you know i might have mentioned this before but i came into it with rather low expectations because you know i see this poster it's like okay four you know four big figures come together and they're you know in a room together like it just seems kind of like a i don't know i don't want to say hokey or whatever it just seems kind of like cliche like a cliche topic or, or story storyline like, okay sure whatever and i don't know they the conversation that, the, that these people had uh, in the play was was uh was great i mean it cer- certainly surpassed my expectations it was really just interesting to get um their perspectives on things and certainly each of them has their own particular perspective given their place in society right and you know we can get into some of that later but 
um, they talk about things and they accuse each other of things and they push each other to do other things that, you know, I certainly would never think of, right. Um, being as a white person, but yeah, I really liked it. So I know, I think we should say that this play is not like as a play that is about like this, you know, civil rights movement circa February of 1964. Like this play is very funny. This play is very like there is yes there is like banter between friends it's not yeah. all like you know for lack of a better word like homeworky yeah it's not like super like preachy preachy either yeah. right yeah. like it's it's a play that is a, about ideals but also a play that is about like a friendship on the line between sam cook and malcolm x and i think yeah. a lot of that really works yeah i so. agree there's that. I wish I just, it's hard to say like, I wish it was better because you know, you sort of have to judge what's there. I just feel like sometimes you got to break out of that and be like, oh Hey, my God. you know, you I had just, four characters. Why did you only use three of them? I just wish it was better. So you listen that's, to yourself. Yeah. Unbelievable. He co-wrote uh, soul, which is my favorite movie of the year. So there that's true. There you go. <laughs> he can be, he can write both things that I like and things that I don't care for. And that's, I think fair. You're being harsh. Okay. Anyways, let's get into jokes. Let's turn this uh, a little bit funnier. We'll try. You so, go first. I'll go first. Will. Eric. Why didn't Muhammad Ali start a podcast? Um, Because podcasts weren't invented until recently. No, because he's too pretty for radio. You know how people say that you have a, a face for radio sometimes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Muhammad Ali is very pretty and yeah. He's got a face for film. That's right. He should be on the big screen. The bigger his face is, the better. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's yeah, he's very pretty. And also it was also that was probably the best moment, I think, that you mentioned too when we were watching of the movie where he is looking at himself in the mirror and he's like, Oh my god. And everybody else is like, What's wrong? Or what's wrong, Cassius? Like, what's going on, man? And he's looking, he's all serious, he's like, Why am I so pretty? Yeah. And it's just like a great comedic moment. I'd probably butchered it, but Nothing was good. You did a very good Charles Barkley. <laughs> That's my, I think yeah. that he's, I think the actor did a Charles Barkley impression and not a Muhammad Ali impression. I, it's gotta be so weird to, cause I want to talk about this a little bit later. Like the affectations put on by some of these characters to, to be, to have a voice that is so unique yeah, and try to get it right. Yeah. The entire time you're filming. And it's gotta be, it's gonna it's, be both hard and weird. Yeah, what a weird thing. You know, imagine if you were friends with one of these actors, like, and you go out with them, and maybe they're like a method actor, or they're like trying to try out a new accent, and they're at a bar, and they're just like talking like they're Muhammad Ali. Like, dude, can you like stop? Can you stop talking like Charles Barkley for a second? It's weird. It is. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's weird because I think it's one thing to do like I'm a British actor and I'm doing an American accent because yeah. that is more normalized. Like, I could go to a bar and be like oh can i have a pint and <laughs> and if i was good at it no one would be like fuck off wanker. no one would be like oh that's weird right yeah. but if you're like doing a 1960s muhammad ali impression that is always going to be slightly strange yeah it was a little weird I-, I thought i actually thought he did pretty good i thought uh kingsley benadir the malcolm x voice was excellent yeah he was he was probably the best i thought the jim brown voice was very terrible yeah aldous hodge needs to continue working on his triceps yeah in order to get acting gigs yeah. no he's good but it's just tough when it's like hey we're gonna give you the least amount of lines and also 
voice is very low it's also tough because i think a lot of people especially me um and probably people from my generation only know jim brown as like the old jim brown and not like jim brown like back when he was really good at football so that's how i think of jim brown and that's how i associate with him because i don't have any other knowledge you haven't watched his movies i have not watched his movies i haven't even seen his highlight tapes i don't think i just know he's just one of the greatest so yeah and he retired young he's like a barry sanders type Oh yeah, he, yeah, retired at like twenty eight, twenty nine or something. Yeah, good yeah. ram. It's bad on your knees. Save your so. knees. That's right. Save right. your brain too. We're, Anyways, we're w- wasting time. Can for I say your my joke? joke? Yes, please. Knock knock. Who is there? Regina. Regina who? Regina King, give me the goddamn Oscar, you motherfucker. I'm kicking down the door. I'm saying, give me my fucking Oscar, Eric. Give it to me, Eric. Give me my fucking Oscar, dude. So best director. Like last time, I I am I'm not laughing. I'm just like cowering in the corner. <laughs> I'm standing why over are you Eric yelling at me? Beat his ass. Yeah. Um, did you did you like my Joker? I don't think it was funny. Your eyes are like very large. <laughs> like you're you're about to strike me. It wasn't really a joke. I'm just wanting to give me. That. Um, you're like Muhammad Ali, and I'm like Sunny Liston, and you're just looking at me like, this. He's so ugly up close. I can't tell. He's he's so ugly up close. You think he's ugly from this far? You should see him up close. Take that one. Yeah. Um, do you? So you're in on her as an Oscar hopeful. Yeah. I think she, I mean, she's probably on the outside looking in at this point. I think Chloe Zhao is probably the front runner and, and for good reason. But I just think I was just so impressed uh, with the movie and we'll get into, you know, the reasons why that I think that she should probably be more in the, and obviously I haven't seen the rest of the films this year, but like, um, I don't know. I was very, very impressed with, with the film and what she did with it. Um, and I just think that she's, She's the real deal. So that's just why I say that. So I'm looking at the gold derby odds right now. And one night in Miami has the seventh best odds at 10 to one for picture for best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, Nomadland, which we covered last week is number one. And is it still tied with Chicago seven? No. Now Nomadland is 13 to two and Chicago seven is 15 to two. So it's probably because we did a podcast episode on Nomad Land. It pushed it over the top. You're yeah. right. You're right. For sure. Um, well, so Will, why don't you tell me what you thought about the movie as we transitioned into Yeah. I thought the movie was really, really good. Um, it was super enjoyable. And, you know, coming into it, I was still kind of thinking like, this is going to be kind of preachy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it was actually super entertaining. Um, they hit all the same interesting conversation points that were in the play, but they expanded on a lot. And I thought that was probably was needed for this movie since it was such a short play but i thought all of it like worked well it gave incredible background story to all the characters um yeah i mean i you know i actually liked it more than nomadland i mean i enjoyed it more than nomadland i'm you know nomadland is another movie i probably need to watch a few more times to really like delve into it and really get a feel for exactly what that movie was but this movie i kind of feel like I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. What about what about you? It's interesting that you talk about Nomad Land in reference to this because obviously we're doing an Oscar season, right? Mm-hmm. Focused on adapted works, but I think there is an element of Oscarness that is not compatible with like rewatchability. Like Nomad Land, you might not rewatch it ever, or you it might take you years. Mm-hmm. Or if if you want to do it for a podcast, you maybe we're gonna, are gonna watch it again, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie, I watched it again today, 
after having watched it for the first time. And it, it is like very, very watchable for sure. It's very enjoyable. Yep. Um, I think it's excellently directed. Mm-hmm. Like the Regina King point is, is spot on because there are some shots in here that are awesome. And I know you want to yeah. talk about those later, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think the direction is, is amazing. And I just think this movie is so good. It really is. I wasn't, I was like sort of a little bit further over the fence um, the last time we recorded this because this is recording number two. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a cloud <laughs> atlas situation all over again. It feels like recording number three or four. Um, but I I have so much more respect for the story and the details that went into this yeah. um, than I did just watching it for the first time. There's so much to be gained um, watching it over and over again. I, I don't know. I, I really, I really love this movie. Um, I think the acting is phenomenal. The dialogue has been changed a little bit from the book. And mm-hmm. I just think it's overall a little bit better. Yeah. It's cleaner. Ken Powers wrote the screenplay in addition to writing the play and maybe just having a couple of years to sit with it. Some different actors to speak. It gave him more of an opportunity to like, Think tighten some things. Yeah. Think some, yeah. Um, and I, I think you're right. Like the power of the lens was really felt here compared yeah. to like Ma Rainey, which was also a play and was also set in two rooms. This play is really set in the hotel room. And then that's it. Yeah. Like people, sometimes people leave the hotel and they come back in and that's all you really get. Yeah. The lens in the movie goes all sorts of places everywhere. There are like introductory scenes for every character, mm-hmm. outro scenes for every character. Yep. There are a couple moments in the film where they leave the hotel, the camera follows them. Yep. Um, and it just, it builds a world that exists outside of the play, mm. but is better to be seen, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, you certainly know about the world outside of the play, right? You're certainly familiar with it, at least to a certain extent. But seeing it just gives it more power and more gives the the, the audience more emotion towards it um, and makes that connection a little bit stronger for the audience in the film. So, you know, I, yeah. I thought Malcolm X's paranoia was way more, was was played up a lot more in the movie, mm-hmm. but not like overplayed. And it, it just made the viewing experience that much better. You sort of got a sense of like, oh shit, trouble is around every door for this guy. And also we know what he is trying to do. And we know that if he doesn't get Cassius Clay to flip to the nation of Islam, he may well like die, right? The nation might well come after him. And this is something you mentioned before we uh, recorded tonight after your second viewing, you said you noticed it after, you know, the first viewing um, where, you know, the stakes are a little bit higher for Malcolm X than you know they were in the play because we're basically directly told um in the movie that he you know is worried about the nation of islam uh retaliating against him because they are aware of his efforts to navigate away from the nation and form his own you know religious entity under islam just separate from the nation um so he thinks you know there's pressure and from the nation and, and he thinks that maybe it'll affect him or his family. Um, and that's something that I don't think either of us actually caught or maybe fully understood when we watched it. Uh, you know, uh, when we saw it together the first time. Yeah. 
and I, I think I was way more in tune to what people are required to do mm-hmm. based on who they work for and the color of their skin. Right. We talked about how there are introductory scenes that accompany each character, each of the four main characters. Sorry, mm-hmm. my dog shakes himself. <laughs> um, in each of those introductory scenes, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke are positioned in relation to a white character or a white group of characters. Mm-hmm. Like Sam Cooke's at the Copa and he bombs. Right. Um, Jim Brown goes to Georgia, uh, Georgia like a, an old family friend who's white, mm. who tells him he's not allowed in his house because he's a black person. Yeah. Um, and Muhammad Ali fights an Englishman. And loses. Almost loses. Or almost loses. Doesn't quite Excuse lose. Me. But I think that with him, he is like taunting and sort of unfocused. And yeah. when he's unfocused and he's not paying attention to what the white man is capable of, yeah. he gets knocked in his face. Yes. Right? So I think there there's a lot of that setup where if you are not fully aware or fully in tune with what the like white person is mm. doing. Yeah. They're going to smack you in the face yeah. and you're going to get blindsided. Right. And that is compared to Malcolm X who also gets his own intro mm-hmm. that in which, um, you know, it's, it's revealed that he's sort of on the outs with the nation and Elijah Muhammad. Um, and he compared to the rest of the characters, isn't really faced off with a, a white character. Right. He's not, he's actually not worried about the white characters. Directly. Right. He's yeah. more worried about what Elijah Muhammad is capable of Correct. versus everyone else. So he yeah. is coming at the conversation to follow from a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah. Um, they mentioned he doesn't have a job per se. So his yeah. like financial life is a little bit different. His personal like relationship to race is a little bit different. Yep. So I, I thought that was interesting and I, and I caught that. I was like, Muhammad Ali, for as much as he's talking, actually comes from a different world than the rest of these guys for sure so with the addition of these introductory as well as uh ending scenes for each of these characters did you like this addition was it did it help you it sounds like you're pretty pro because it gives you pretty pro these scenes because it gives you sort of more background it sort of gives you more thematic gunfire for lack of a better word um to the story um and it gives you just more perspective on each of these characters yeah you know the last time we recorded this i was sort of i didn't like them as much but now that i've i've sat with them and you think like okay it's actually not about what jim brown was facing when he goes back to saint simon's island in georgia where he grew up it's actually about placing them at odds with what malcolm x is facing Mm. and it's it's sort of separating the three from the one yeah so in a way, we are by setting that up, we can see that Malcolm X is very much alone, mm-hmm. and his need in the story to flip Cassius Clay, not only to a, a member of the Nation of Islam, which he's already done, but to flip him from that to his own burgeoning sect within the like Muslim Church, mm-hmm. um, carries like very very severe consequences for his own personal safety and well-being yeah and that's something that was added on the play i mean it was it was referenced in the play very uh minimally i guess it was it was it was sort of like a one or two sentence mention in the play where he was trying to recruit cassius clay to become part of his new sect uh, under islam 
Um, but it was certainly more direct in the movie and it certainly gives, uh, Malcolm X's character a little bit more, um, pressure. More, yeah. More, from Elijah more urgency. More urgency. Yeah. So the stakes are a little bit higher for him and he's the one who is certainly the most serious throughout. Um, the other characters are sort of like enjoying life and they don't really have this significant weight on their shoulders and they're sort of giving him shit because he's so serious all the time. And, um, all this stuff. And he, you know, there's a, there's a point in the movie where Sam Cooke actually mentions, you know, you know, uh, I love Malcolm, but I don't know who you are. Like, I don't know who this is. Like, this is not Malcolm, but I love Malcolm. And, you know, and I think that kind of speaks to, you know, the pressure obviously that he's facing and the person that he's become and, but also sort of the social, uh, or maybe the, uh, perspective on his, place in society the the social responsibility and social pressure that he carries with him on a daily basis whereas the other is kind of like going in and out of having this pressure and having the social responsibility you know they they enjoy their life but they also have this platform that they use you know every once in a while but yeah you know what's interesting when you brought that up the the fact that um they give malcolm some shit for his like performative nature yeah right I, I, there are are a couple of moments in the movie actually where they do talk about that. Like there's one point where they steal his camera and he drops his like affected tone of speech yeah, and yeah. says something that's, you know, more like modern. Yeah. Right? More normal. Than yeah. The way he talks. Mm. Um, he's often like taking off his glasses and like cleaning them, just putting mm. them other places. And I don't know. Part of it struck with me is just like, they are all performative in a sense, like there are two athletes, there is a singer and then there's Malcolm X. But, and so it, it, you know, it's, it's easy. Like Sam Cook says to say, which of the three, which of the four of us doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's Malcolm X. Right. But I think the more you think about it, like the fact that he puts on a different voice, the fact that he maybe, maybe doesn't need his glasses. The fact that he, um, I don't know. He, he has a facade. Mm. The fact that like Sam Cooke is like, I don't know who you are actually. Right, there used right. to be someone beneath you. Right. Like he's also a performer. Yep. He's also putting on for, you know, reasons that aren't fully clear all mm -hmm. the time. Jim Brown accuses him of like, you know, are you putting on for the white man? Or are you putting on for the black man? Yeah. I don't know that you're actually sure Malcolm. Right. And I, I think it, it, it levels him out a little bit. So, the fact that everyone is actually performing for somebody else. Yes. And, no, I totally agree. And it's it's an app point that you make about Malcolm X because I don't think it's as obvious as the other characters. But I wanted to mention another shout out to Regina King for her directing was she used mirrors a lot uh, in in the hotel room where characters were having conversations with each other. And I it was enough to make me notice, you know, sometimes you just have a mirror and whatever, like even in the beginning where she has a mirror with uh Cassius clay, where he's talking about how pretty he is, but she uses mirrors in a much more serious sense as well, where she, you know, I think from what she's trying to describe while she's showing this is that each of these characters has basically two personas, right? They have their, what you just talked about, their, public persona their performance persona as well as their real persona like the person they are when they're in a hotel room whether when they're with their buddies is different than who they are on the outside um which that was another clever uh point or a clever directorial 
flourish technique i guess you say yeah you're right because jim brown goes into the bathroom once and just like stares at himself i think sam cook does that as well maybe the only person who doesn't really do that is malcolm x who doesn't have like a look in the mirror moment because he's Mm. also very clearly is the only one who doesn't recognize that he is no longer two people yes yeah like his his persona has melded into his like day-to-day yeah he doesn't remember who he was in the past he just thinks he's the same person yeah but he doesn't realize that he's kind of drifted from that person yeah but even i mean you mentioned that and he's critical of the people that have too right like he tells sam cook like oh you have one set for the copa and you have one set for yes you know a black audience right exactly but I mean, the point that I was making wasn't necessarily about them looking directly at themselves in the mirror. It was more about them having conversations with another character in the hotel room where the mirror was bouncing off, you know, Sam Cooke or um, Jim Brown or Cassius Clay. Um, so I just thought it was well done. I well, mine's better. I like mine. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that's I, I, Regina King is growing in she's my a, estimation. Yeah, she's good. She's great. Do you want to talk? Uh, oh, also, we should mention, uh, do we think this adaptation was literal, loose, reimagined? I think it's fairly literal with like a, a, a dusting of updates. Like mostly this is the exact same movie as it was in a play, mm. but there are a couple of key changes. They sort of, they take like parts of the play that weren't described fully and sort of expand on those. Like the Copa scene, like that was a scene that was mentioned in the play, but wasn't really talked about extensively. And they have a full like 10 minute scene about it, as well as the Georgia trip where Jim Brown travels to the white man's house and the white man tells him you can't come on or you can't come in the house. Um, As well as, um, what am I forgetting? Wasn't there another one? Or was that it? Sam Cooke. I think at some point they like, Malcolm X goes outside to call his wife and that's shown in here. That's true. Um, uh, Sam goes to the liquor store and that's shown versus Mm -hmm. just like he leaves and comes back. Yeah. So they took things from the play and sort of just like showed them. Oh, I'm forgetting the scene about uh, the, the performance, the Sam cook performance in Boston. Right. So this was another key scene that we both enjoyed because um, you know, it was certainly an interesting story. It sort of, brings the two characters together you know the their tension is building throughout right they're getting more and more at each other's throats and you know there's this moment of um realization for sam cook when malcolm x is telling him about you know i was at your play in boston and whatever year it was uh he's oh yeah i remember that play whatever or i remember that performance that uh that, that uh concert and he tells him yeah i've been to five other concerts of yours blah 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 whatever he's oh yeah so they basically recount the story of the uh, concert where uh, in the movie, at least Jackie Wilson is the opener and he cuts out Sam Cooke's mic as he's going on stage, um, which was another interesting side note. But basically what happens is Sam Cooke realizes that he's in trouble because the audience is turning against him and he needs to do something quick. So his band actually just leaves because they're like, we're not going to, we have nothing to do with this. We're just going to leave because we don't want to deal with this shit anyways. So Sam Cooke sort of, gets the crowd going by doing like a stomp and a clap and then singing over top of it. But another shout out to Virginia King. She has this great moment where she pulls the camera in close to Sam cook on this performance here. 
and she pulls the camera backwards through the concert audience where the sound of Sam Cooke's voice, which is not you know, propagated by the microphone, is just his voice in the auditorium. It becomes less and less and less uh, as, the, as the camera goes backwards, and you, but you still hear the stomp and the clap. So back, backwards all the way to Malcolm X, uh, where he's sitting and appreciating Sam Cooke's innovation, creativity, ability to you know, lift an audience out of nothing, essentially. So I think it's a moment that, that drops all the bullshit. Like there is, there is the Malcolm X affectation that says, you know what? Remember the first time we met Sam Cooke? Oh, it was in you know this club. He's like, mm. I said that. And I said, I also didn't know your music, but actually I've been to five of your shows. I'm actually a fan of yours. Right. And so the Malcolm X is Malcolm X is saying in reality, like this is who I am as a person. I'm a person who actually goes to listen to your music. Mm-hmm. I don't like, you know, Jackie Wilson. I don't like that kind of music, but I like your kind of music. Right. I, I do actually vibe with you. And then Sam Cooke is saying, you know, I'm a person that just writes little poppy love songs that mm-hmm. white girls are going to stamp their feet to. Right. And Malcolm X is like, no, actually in the Boston show, you were so much more than that. Yeah. And you know that. Yeah. And so they have this moment where the guards are down, the bullshit is dropped and they can say like, Hey, we're actually not that far apart. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. I've done this, you've done that. We are closer than we realized. And it's a big turning point for i think both characters yeah where sam cook realizes like okay well you know one of the scenes before that he storms out when um they play a bob dylan song yeah and you know malcolm's like why didn't you write this song this is a song that captures the black experience and a white like singer is number one on the radio singing a song that you could have written but you're Mm -hmm. too much of a coward to write it right and um sam cook comes back and realizes that like not only is he capable of moving people he's also like capable of writing a song like that yeah um and malcolm x too is realizing like you know sometimes to get to the heart of his movement of what he's trying to accomplish he just has to be real Mm -hmm. with people he can't just be the guy that is fire and brimstone and has a 1940s accent um he has to be somebody that understands what a person might need from him to make a new life for themselves. Yeah. And he's got the talent to do it. Yeah. So, so I, I thought that scene was amazing. And the filmmaking obviously is fantastic. Yeah. It, it's probably the pivotal scene to bring those characters together. Like you said, um, because they're so far apart throughout the rest of the movie where they just, you don't see where they're going to come together on anything. But, you know, I think that is a great, story from malcolm x that shows sam cook like you know this is where i'm coming from and it gives it provides sam cook some empathy to take with him He's like okay maybe you're right i don't know we'll see so then he writes a new song or he's got something in the oven that he's working on yep a change is gonna come so that's another difference from the play where they actually perform that song on uh, Johnny Carson or Sam Cooke, excuse me, performs a song on Johnny Carson. It's kind of like the montage outro to the movie. Um, whereas in the, in the play, he just mentions that he's working on something and he doesn't mention what the song is called. Does he or, sing it in the play? He does not. He uh, that's a good question. I don't believe so. They do sing some songs in the play, but I don't, be- actually maybe he does. Sing he it. might, I, he might sing it. I can't yeah. remember. Um, but anyways, it was not as certainly wasn't clearly as powerful as the movie did it. Um, but the movie sort of plays this great song, 
you know, after they've had these altercations and this realization of each other and, you know, the power that, you know, the responsibility that, you know, that they have um, being this public persona and sings a song. And, you know, we see, we see Jim Brown retire, right, from the NFL to pursue a career in acting. We see um, Malcolm X, his family is uh, firebombed. Yeah, fire. There, there's a Molotov cocktail thrown inside his house, so he has to, you know, run outside and with his rifle and protect his family. Um, Sam Cooke is performing as Johnny Carson, and then Cassius Clay is being basically introduced as a as a, a member of the Nation of Islam. Um, I think they call him Muhammad, or he says, "Call me Muhammad X." before at the press conference at the press conference and then in this scene he says his new name is muhammad, muhammad Ali. Ali. that's right yeah. um so he's being introduced to the nation of islam um and there's notably a seat that's empty right meant to signify uh malcolm x's sort of has left and muhammad ali hasn't come with him yes exactly so there's that rift that isn't really resolved for obvious reasons to probably to stay accurate for historical perspectives um but yeah it was a i mean what did you think of the scene it was certainly a a different ending i mean it was probably the same in heart i would say but different in the way that it was done in the added elements of the sort of the tie the bow on each of these characters uh storylines yeah i think a lot of it was just like we are now making our own decisions for ourselves like jim brown is finally saying fuck you to the nfl you you obviously he's he got a lot from it and he gained a lot of notoriety from his playing days but he's moving on he's Mm -hmm. trying to find a way for himself to be paid for probably get like more paid 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 more handsomely to, to do an acting job right so it's it's a bit of a financial windfall for him Mm -hmm. and muhammad ali is is just i think the movie plays it up more than the the play does um muhammad ali's spirituality it seems like he's joining the nation of islam because he is both like curious and spiritual right he believes in the faith whereas in the play it's more of a it's more of like a recruiting trip in a sense like he's recruited muhammad ali to come here yeah you don't actually know that he's really believes in it yeah in the movie like he prays um he also has his reservations that he, he does mentions. he um, drinks he, he drinks he questions bit. yeah yeah so he's 22 i mean he's he's young yeah yeah but I, I think it is him making the understanding that by doing this he's gonna put a target on his back it's gonna make his life harder yeah he's gonna become the heel for a, a time in his life by doing this yeah um and he is accepting all that and he's wearing that he's he's wearing it right yeah. like he's he's carrying that with him and yeah. he's he's accepted it and he's he's done it yeah i mean you know i, I agree with everything you said and I, I really liked the intros and outros to these characters um there weren't a whole lot of differences in the middle except for maybe the scene where sam cook and and uh Cassius clay go to the um like seven it's not a 7-11 liquor store liquor store yeah um you know that was a key difference it was a key scene for those characters and i don't know is in general would you say that this film had the same heart as the play i think so i think the the only like big difference to my mind is the end of the play 
there's no obviously there's no like single character outros but um everyone does go to party and that's what they want to do in the movie but in the play malcolm x stays behind yeah he's actually it's revealed not allowed to leave his hotel room because the nation is watching him right but everyone else leaves in the movie he does leave Mm -hmm. but i think in the movie they do a better job of playing up his paranoia Mm, definitely so it, it sort of gives you the same feeling where the nation is like impinging on his ability to live unencumbered yes um but because we can show you the white guy standing behind the phone booth because we can see him like check the lamps or look right. outside the window, whatever. We've like built this to a point where we don't need to keep him in the hotel room. We can allow him to leave. Yeah. And it, it gives you the same, it, it hits you the same way. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I think it, it definitely allows the like creators of the film a little bit more flexibility with, with adding, you know, the visuals of the two white men who are like waiting outside, kind of looking in his direction and, who were getting paid by one of Malcolm X's uh, body men. Right? Bodyguards, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end, we find out that I think his brother Kareem, who is like giving these guys like a either an envelope of something. Yeah. Um, so some shady dealings with the with the Nation of Islam, unfortunately. But hey, yeah, tough, tough times. I think but. it. I think it. I, I think I prefer the movie version because it shows you more actively the steps that the Nation is taking to, you know incite violence on his life right mm. by like directly paralleling brother kareem giving money to these two white folks and then showing his house getting firebombed yeah whereas in the play you sort of get a sense that like he's boxed in by the nation he can't leave these four walls yeah um but i, I think if you could have shown violence on the play stage you would have mm. wanted to do that but because you you don't have the space you don't have the ability yeah it's tougher yeah also, they give a little nod to the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, we see that uh, like toward, before his house is firebombed, he has a, he's basically finished writing his manuscript or you know whatever. I don't know what, what do you call like a first a first draft of a book? Yeah, is that what you call it? He okay. wrote his yeah yeah. So we see that as like one of the closing outros, which was a, a cool nod to his you know you know very famous work um, that he wrote, but. All in all, did you find this adaptation successful? I did. I I would definitely recommend people watch this more than once. Mm. I think there's a lot to be gained from a second viewing. Or maybe I'm just really bad at watching things for the first time. <laughs> that could also be true. Mm-hmm. That seems like a through line throughout my entire life. Um, <laughs> but I, I quite enjoy this movie. Um, I think... I guess we'll have to see where we, we come down when we do a more thorough Oscar show. Mm. But... Um, as an adaptation, I thought this spread the story beyond its capabilities by adding more menace, um, by adding more paranoia, by bringing in more conflict yeah. and showing it rather than leaving it off screen. Yeah. And that's sort of a cheap thing to say because, you know, a play is set in a hotel room and obviously it, things have to be left off screen. But I think there's... I think uh, Regina King showed the right things. Yes. Yeah. And I think everything that she did not only piggybacked on what Kemp Powers wanted to do, 
but added like unintended things like the mirror effect yeah that you mentioned or some of the other like metaphors or mm-hmm. slide it all served the story yeah mm-hmm. and it deepened it too yeah. right like i mm-hmm. think him you know taking off his glasses all the time yeah um him that's interesting that you that you notice that in the second viewing or did you notice that in the first viewing too i i noticed it more fully in the second viewing yeah I'm thinking back on it now. He does do that a lot, but I, I guess I just never, never noticed. That. He does it so much. Yeah. Um, I didn't pick up with the mirrors, but now that you said that, I totally see that. I was, I did remember like there's a scene with Jim Brown just staring into the camera, like effectively staring into a mirror mm-hmm. and they, there's a conversation happening outside the bathroom, mm-hmm. but they show him listening to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there, I mean, you could show him just in the bathroom and have like a speck of conversation and then we move on. Yeah. But there's an active choice made to show Jim Brown listening to what's happening outside. And maybe it's, you know, a reflection of his character that's sort of always inside and not out there, like oh, being a part of it. And then maybe some of it is just filmmaking technique where yeah. sometimes big moments of conversation happen when you're not around. I don't know. There, there's a lot of interesting things happening in this movie that are not on the page right that are that are made by the lens and i think that's really cool that's why we call it with the lens babe there you go yeah i thought this adaptation was super super successful i mean it to everything that you just said i mean it it just took everything that the play had and just sort of like i kind of see the play as like the the roots like the base of the tree and and the the movie is like the actual tree right, with all the leaves and everything. It just like grew from everything that it had already and just had just a lot more interesting stuff going on. Like, you know, we both read the play in, you know, less than a day or whatever it was. And, you know, that was kind of it. We didn't have like full, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to dive into, but this movie, it's like, there's a lot. I mean, you could talk about almost every single scene and have a you know real conversation for it. I want to get on some, like a Broadway actor and ask them how to read a play because mm-hmm. I wonder if we just read it too fast or if there's a different way to read a play that's yeah, more intentional because it's dial it's just dialogue it's all dialogue and, I mean some screen direction or uh, you know but very little stage direction but yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. it's a, a, something that takes us like 45 minutes to read that is performed in twice that time I feel like a play is an actor's medium in a, in a film as a director's medium. And I don't know really, I think like because the play is written and it's only dialogue. Well, it's, it's also up, real time. What? A play what is also mean? real time, right? Like who knows how many takes it took to get Aldous Hodge to yes. say his lines. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, shout out to Aldous Hodge. <laughs> Come on the pod. But like it's up to the actor to like bring this, bring this, these words to life and you know to a certain extent that's true of a movie as well an actor has to do his thing right actor actress but it's more about the director in the in the movie because you have so much more to bring so you have to really bring it right like in a play you're constrained you have you know 50 feet or whatever 50 by 50 and you have a limited audience but a movie you could put it anywhere and you have to make strategic decisions about where to put that camera that maybe uh you know show the audience a different way of looking at something 
Um, and I just think like Regina King did, you know, uh, we've mentioned this a lot of times, but like she just did a, such a great job with it. Yeah. I don't I, know. Logistically too, I think it's hard to, to set a play in a little hotel room like that. Yeah. Um, if, especially if you have a camera, think about like how big a camera is, how you need to light a scene yeah. and all that and be able to like move it around and have it look so seamless. Plus like Eli Goree who played Catcher's Clay is enormous. So like, how do you logistically move it around him? Like he's just so big. Or Aldous Hodges triceps. They're yeah. Also, like, they're, they're <laughs> must, are also it must've been so difficult to move around though. Anyways, we have, is there any, well, before we move on, do you want to mention anything else? No, I think we hit on a lot of the big, big things. Um, I would definitely recommend people check this out. Definitely. Amazon Prime. Phenomenal. Yeah. Two hours. Before it's a little bit longer. It, it is it is interesting that you know, we talked about these intros. They take like twenty five minutes total. Thirty minutes. Yeah. Before we get into the actual hotel room. Yeah. So there's quite a bit that is added on. It you know, it, it exists in the play in some respects as like throwaway dial not throwaway dial as like additional as, like contextual. Yeah. yeah, as sort of like remembrances, but when to, with a movie you can literalize yeah those things but it is interesting that this play which takes place only in a hotel room spends the first 30 minutes of its film runtime outside of the hotel yeah. room yep so i don't know I, I thought that was interesting. no it's definitely interesting i mean um i agree all right i don't have anything to add i'm sorry good well i hope you are hungry will because um this is our hot take segment sponsored by wendy's four pieces of spicy chicken nuggets for 99 cents i am hungry so i don't know if i said that right i don't think so i don't know if you did either but it sounds great little lens hot take sponsored by wendy's spicy chicken nuggets four for 99 cents thank you get them while they're hot (laughs) get them while they're spicy yes okay we're gonna just move on uh can you do yours this is why i don't host this is why i don't host (laughs) no you go you can go first all right so my hot take is kingsley benadir will have the best career of his counterparts uh in the movie um actors only um just because i think well first of all he's british right how do you define that what do you mean like the most successful career so like um in 50 years we'll remember his name more than we'll remember yeah other people's names correct he'll he'll he will have bring more to the world of acting than the other actors so if i will uh, what if i told you that one of these actors is halfway to an egot would you say i would say is is you know sometimes kingsley benadir gonna get it sometimes you peak at the wrong time can you know what i'm saying kingsley benadir sing who I, uh, probably not well, well maybe uh-huh. but can daniel, daniel day lewis sing he doesn't have an egot so. yeah but he's <laughs> can you name one person who has an egot um sure jennifer lee the songwriter of frozen among other things okay so nobody knows who that is I know who that was. I think John I John Williams might have an EGOT. EGOTs are for people who are weird. It's not a real thing, but... It is a real thing. Also, it's not not a real thing. My point is Leslie Odom Jr. has two... Th- who is, who is more successful? Jennifer Lee or Daniel Day Lewis, for example? Or or uh, Meryl Streep? But now we're... But this is a different... What you need to do is compare him to like... You need to compare apples to apples. What I'm saying is, even if Sam Cooke, or I'm sorry, obviously an actor is more successful than a person who wrote music. Okay, or thank movies. you. So you just, yeah, you agree with me. But this is not a, <laughs> a fair comparison. 
I'm saying even if Leslie one Odom of, Jr. gets an EGOT, I still think Kingsley Benadire will be more successful. Okay. I'm, I guess I shouldn't step on your hot take. Thank you. <laughs> I know it's hot, but I just love to. I just love to. All right, you go. Um, okay. <clears throat> I think I am done watching movies that should just be documentaries. I really, I really wish that we could get back to a time where we could make Citizen Kane. Mm. You know what I mean? Where like it's based on a character and not the character. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I, I, although I like this movie, I'm just. I would just rather watch the true story of a historical moment versus like, you know, Ben Meserich writing about GameStop. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out Ben Meserich. Please come on the podcast. Yeah, no, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, although there are a lot of documentaries nowadays, like there are a shit ton of documentaries. That's right. Um, because they're great content there does seem to be this trend in Hollywood that are sort of like regurgitating historical moments um, and, you know, dramatizing them or fantasizing them for, for this example of this film. Um, I don't know. I think we sort of talked about it. Like what makes this movie um, fundable? Why would you, why would you make this movie? Because Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali ironically are on it right like you know 70 60 years ago so it's not the case but right um because you have those names you can make this movie yeah right like having the real people involved not involved but having the real people in it Mm -hmm. is makes it sellable so let me ask you a question if we come across another litowens joint that's like this one but it's about an historical moment in time, but it's a dramatic movie and it's not a documentary. Are you not going to watch it? Well, I think there's only so much you can do like trial of the Chicago seven, for instance. Yeah. That's a documentary you should watch, not a movie you should watch. I, there are, there are different things. Yeah. But if you are trying to get the same thing out of both, you're going to fail. What I'm trying to ask you though, you said here that, you are quoted on this podcast as saying, I am done watching oh, movies that should just be documentaries. Is is that your stance? Well, I control the little ones calendar. It's a yes or no question. And therefore, right? I'm going to avoid all <laughs> future um, episodes that involve real people. So join us next week for <laughs> The Devil Wears Prada. Can't wait. No, okay. I, I don't know. I get what you're saying. What saying? Yeah. Yes, I understand what you're saying. I just wanted to make fun of you. No, because that's what you said. Thank you. I just think that my problem is not that Trial of the Chicago Seven exists; it's that Trial of the Chicago Seven wants to be the definitive telling of that story. Yeah, and where it should be a documentary, you think? I think that the movie should maybe like it's more fictionalized than I'm giving it credit for. But like when someone says, "Oh." that was an interesting story that I learned about watching this Netflix movie mm. being like, well, I get your y- point. You need to be looking at something else. Yeah. So people, basically your point is like people are learning from fictional movies, whereas they should be learning from documentaries or, you know, more journalistic, I guess, uh, source material. Treat yourself to some factual knowledge, Will, and not some fictionalized knowledge. Well, nowadays, factual knowledge is debatable yeah it is interesting the the whole documentary boom like i do think there's there's something to reading a book 
a, uh, a novel that you don't like mm. and thinking, wow, I wasted two weeks and reading a nonfiction book and thinking, wow, I don't really care for that, but I thought it was interesting that I learned X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. There is always some sort of benefit to watching nonfiction. You so, always learn a little bit, even if you don't care for the subject matter. Yeah, for sure. So how did you feel about, you know, Citizen Four? Did you watch it? Did you did you? I see haven't it? seen it. Did you see the Snowden movie? I watched all of Shalane Woodley's work. <laughs> so what the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> God almighty. That's different. This is a Shalane Woodley show. Unbelievable. This and you a... support Joseph Gordon-Levitt. What? That I said, hack. What did I say? I said I watched all of Shalane Woodley's work. Yeah, but you still supported him. Unbelievable. You are a hypocrite. Nick Cage was also in that film. We're moving on. Wonderful film. <laughs> all right, so move your book. Movie. I don't think it's... For me, it's not that close. Um, for you, maybe it is a little closer. A little bit. Uh, I, I mean, I still think the movie was far more entertaining and far more far superior than the play. I mean, just for, I mean, the re- reasons we, we mentioned, I don't want to regurgitate them here, but movie every day of the week. All right. Final thoughts. What are you going to remember from the book or the play? Excuse me. Well, th- this is old now, but I watched it again this, this afternoon and just so much ice cream. <laughs> it just looks so good. <laughs> yeah. This is a movie, right? You didn't ask to play. No, I said the play. But they also have ice cream in the play, so yeah. Well, it's you for, can just say it's both. For both. For both. <laughs> but really, like they eat this these like, you know, you think of like tubs of ice cream now. Yeah, they're more rounded. Different. Yeah. Um, think of like Edies or Briars. It's, it's sort of like a little ovular, mm. ovular, ovular. Are you shape. ovulating? Is that what you're saying? Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. But the ice cream is like a, a like a rectangular brick. Yeah, it's weird looking. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like the older way they did it. I don't know why we keep talking about this. Uh, both versions of my answer is ice cream. And I had some Halo Top um, the Monday after we watched it on the Sunday. And it was not good because Halo, Halo Top, Top is, is not good. It's fucking garbage. So I think future Eric is going to be eating some like full fat ice cream. Just get Trader. I mean, not Trader Joe's. Ben and Jerry's. Like, just stick with what you know. I'm a big Edie's guy. I like Edie's. Oh, Edie's is good. Yeah. Uh, I like. Uh, for, I forgot what it's called. Right. Farm- you're like a cold stone. turkey hill turkey hill oh that's my shit yeah that's my jam it's super good anyways super soft that's what like will it. you remember from the play uh the tension between malcolm x and sam cook like i mentioned before um that was just my favorite i think my favorite part it just you know because it, it was something i just didn't expect do you own the do you own bob dylan on vinyl or is that charlie it's probably charlie it's not me you're not going to go I'm home not, and put like Bob Dylan on the vinyl. I'm not that mainstream. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I would never like, I would never subject myself to stupid shit like that. Who's a, who, is there an artist you would go home and put on the record player? Yeah, but you probably haven't heard of him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say on the street. Uh, Sam Cooke. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so from the movie for you. Uh, the performances for sure. Um, especially, I mean, honestly, all of them were like really good. I, I mean, I know you make fun of, the Muhammad Ali character <laughs> with his Charles Barkley accent. But like, I didn't get that at all. I thought it was like, I thought he was charismatic. He was big personality. Um, you know, there was a mo- moment watching the movie. I was like, maybe he did better than Will Smith, but I don't want to go that far. Um, I haven't seen that movie. Ali. Well, I mean, Will Smith is a legend in that movie, but like, I don't know. I, I think this guy did a great job as well, but I really enjoyed um, Sam Cooke is his singing 
as well as just Malcolm X and his just like sort of calm reserved but also agitated and pressure nature and you just got a lot from his performance by him not doing a whole lot physically so yeah that's what i think what about you um if i can gobble up more leslie odom jr stock i'm I'm gonna i'm buying there's no there has not been a dip but if there were a dip i would be i'd be in on it yeah i mean i'm sure it's gonna even skyrocket he's got two fourths of a egot will i don't know if you knew that I think you mentioned that earlier in the show. I can't remember. I mean, there's a chance he'll probably there's get a nominated. chance he could win an Oscar. Not li- not a likely chance. Not a good chance. I mean, I'm sure he'll get plenty of roles in the future. That well, he, are, he's going to get nominated for this. I mean, there's a chance oh, he could yeah, win for this for sure. For sure. And I don't now know. He just needs to slum it and go to TV. Are you kidding me? He could get an Emmy easily. <laughs> Do you think that would be his career goal to get an EGOT? No. Yeah, probably not. It's an honor just to be nominated. You don't. It's not. You don't have to worry yourself with like winning or not. See, that's what I'm saying. That's my point. Like, nobody gives a sh- Nobody's actually pursuing any got. Well, that would just be trying fight. to win awards. Yeah. I mean, I'm pursuing an EGOT, but I'm not. <laughs> right? I'm not. I can't be in movies because I'm not a good actor. In the literal sense. One day. Like, Malcolm X is not, yeah. you know, it doesn't have a real job in a literal sense. Right, right, right. I, I'm not in movies in a literal sense. No, I get it. I see what okay. you're saying. Thank you. Um, okay, well, that's it. That sums it up for the show. Let's sign off here. Check out our most recent episode on Nomadland. Um, Keep an eye out on our next episode, which is going to be on News of the World by the author Paulette Giles. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, Which is actually only available to rent online. It's actually not streaming anywhere, not on Prime, not on Netflix. So unfortunately, you have to pay for it. But maybe, maybe by the time we finish reading it and we record it, it'll be somewhere. But don't expect that to be the case um and then are there any shout outs that you'd like to make at this point eric i would like to shout out all of the winners of i guess it's not a award but i'll like shout out all of the egots out there um may your dreams always come true their dreams have already been the their dreams have been realized by winning this egot well, there's actually a decent amount of them here. Richard Rogers, Helen Myers, Helen Hayes. But none of these... Oh, John Legend won one. Yep. Whoopi Goldberg. It's Mike not a, it's, it's, a, it's a small list, right? Mel Brooks. It's, it's like, uh, what, 16 people? Liza Minnelli, Quincy Jones. So it's, it's a lot of writers. It's a lot of musicians. It's a lot of has-beens. That's what I like. I'm saying it's, it's not easy to be an actor and win it, like Audrey Hepburn did or Rita Marino. Um, so I think if you... Oh my god, the first guy, Richard Rogers, won a PGOT, which is also includes a Pulitzer Prize. That's the new fucking standard. Although that guy. Well, if you're not a writer, then you can't. You know what a Rogers and Hammerstein? These people are artists, Eric. They can do anything, okay? They're not categorized to a specific medium, they express themselves in a multitude of ways. So, congratulations to all the winners. They're not winners. Congratulations to all the members of the EGOT Club. You deserve everything. I'm not going to second that, but we'll see you guys next time.